Well, good morning, Grace Church. It's good to be with you today. Uh, thankful to our pastors for entrusting me with this responsibility uh, to preach the word today. Um, and just before I get started, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. But you know, a wise man once said that great congregations make great preachers. And while I do not take on the title of a great preacher, I do have to say this is a great congregation. And if you're wondering what wise man said great congregations make great preachers, that is Dr. Richie Allen himself. So, thank you guys for being a great congregation. Katie and I are grateful for you, especially in this season of our life uh, as we have brought in our son into the world and we get to enjoy that time with him. Y'all have been great to us. Y'all have served us and loved for us. Um, y'all are our family, so we're grateful for y'all. This morning, I want us to examine Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. You may be familiar with the book of Ephesians, uh, one of the most beautiful letters in all of the New Testament, uh, as far as praising God for the glory of His grace and uh, doctrine and devotion flowing together in the Christian life from the praise of God to living in the obedience of faith. Uh, the book of Ephesians has it all from spiritual warfare to prayer uh, to how the Jews and the Gentiles are co-heirs with Christ Himself. But we come to this point in the book of Ephesians today and we're hopping kind of in the end part of the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 and we're getting to this whole portion of Paul's letter where he is talking about the Christian life. Uh, and the term he uses for the Christian life in this kind of the whole book is the term walk. He uses the analogy of walking to describe the Christian life. And so we are going to examine this passage under the heading today when our walk begins to talk. And if you want kind of a subheading for that, when our walk begins to talk, walking with spiritual wisdom before a watching world. When our walk begins to talk. And so I want us to see today that living as those loved by God means that we will live our lives with spirit-filled intention and perception. Living as those loved by God means that we will live our lives with spirit-filled intention and perception. You know, you can tell a lot about someone based on the way that they walk. When someone is walking quick you know that they are in a hurry and don't want to be stopped. When someone is walking slow, you know that they don't have a care in the world and they don't care that you're trying to get out of the grocery store quick. They just want to walk slow in front of you. When someone is walking aggressively towards you, like if I was to walk like this toward Jamie Baker, what do you think I'm about to do? I might want to fight Jamie Baker. I, I, and you're right. Jamie would knock me out very quickly. But if I was to walk towards you like this, or with my hand extended out, you would know that I want to welcome you in. You know, you can tell a lot by the way someone walks. The way someone walked in the building this morning told you whether they are in a good mood or a bad mood, whether they had a good week or a bad week. And at the end of the day, the way someone walks always talks. Your walk always talks. So what is your walk saying today? With this in mind, I want us to focus in on this thought. When our walk 
begins to talk. Read with me Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. The Word of God says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you this morning um, gathering together to worship your holy name. We thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known to us. Lord, and that none of us were brought here this morning or were brought to salvation in Christ because we were smarter or better or wiser, but because by the kind intention of your will, you opened up our eyes to see the ugliness of our sin, and the beauty of Christ. So, Father, we ask now that what we know not, you would teach us, that what we have not, you would give us, and that what we are not, you would make us for the sake and glory of your Son, Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You know, for I mentioned it earlier, for the past two months, I have experienced the joy of being a dad. Uh, there are some great privileges that go with being a dad, let me tell you. I know I'm only two months in, but let me just tell you a few. Watching my son grow before my eyes is one of the coolest things I have ever seen. Seeing him smile when I look at him is awesome. Watching my wife become a tremendous mom is amazing. And then there's the eighth wonder of the world when he went number one and number two at the same time while I was changing him. It was, it was insane. I know many of y'all may have experienced that as well. But with privileges, there also comes a responsibility or a list of them. Like one of them is making sure that he's breathing. It is the most terrifying thing ever when your son goes, (gasps) and he's like two months old. You don't know what's going on. Another responsibility is changing his diapers when he gets messy, you know. Another one that I didn't really think about was driving cautiously. I have to drive cautiously now because I have a two-month-old in the back seat. And above all these things, there is one responsibility that I'm constantly aware of now that I was not really focused on before Katie and I had Walker. And that was being careful how I walk. You know, before Katie and I had Walker, I would dart up and down the stairs all day long. We live in this two-story apartment. We're upstairs. You know, I'm one of those guys, and this is weird, but I like to hop steps. So instead of just walking like a normal person up the steps one step at a time, I like to like skip steps, you know. But I don't do that anymore. I don't get to have that fun. Um, also, I have to actually like have a nightlight on now when I get up at night. I didn't do that before we had Walker. It's kind of nice, though. Also, I, I wasn't really big on cleaning up the dog's toys. You know, I never wanted them in my way, but I didn't really pay attention to that. But now I have to kick them out of the way so I don't step on them when I'm holding my child. And, you know... The big thing also is, you know, like you don't think about it before, but like, you have to be careful if you stub your toe on a couch, because I don't want to drop him. And let me tell you, I am not the kind of guy that likes to hold babies. So if you have a baby and you're one of those moms who's like, I don't want 
Anyone to hold my baby, guess what? I am not going to ask you to hold your child. I don't hold babies in general, but I hold my son because I'm, I love him. He's awesome. But one of the things I've learned since being a parent is that when I'm holding Walker, I've got to be careful how I walk. So now, this is going to be weird, but like this is Walker right here. I, I'm walking down the steps like this. And I'm watching my every step. I'm being careful how I walk. If I'm up at night, I'm making sure the dog's bone isn't right there for me to step on it. Because I don't want to drop him. So I'm careful how I walk. And so now I heed the wise parenting advice of the Apostle Paul. Be careful how you walk. Because how someone walks is a traceable and tangible sign of the condition of their life and what they value the most. For how we live our lives, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves, communicates to a watching world who and what we treasure above everything else. Therefore, it is paramount this morning that, number one, our walk will be characterized by careful intention. Our walk will be characterized by careful intention. We see this in verses 15 through 17 as he tells us, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There are a few elements here in verse 15 that we need to draw our attention to. First of, there, There's four in particular. First of all, we see that Paul uses this word, therefore. Really quick, you've probably heard this before. Therefore, when you see that word, you always have to ask, what is therefore? Therefore. So we see that Paul is basically giving us a signal here. He's saying, on the basis of a previously stated reason, i.e. Ephesians 1-3, through 3, the whole doctrinal foundation of Ephesians, but more specifically, in light of Ephesians 5-1 and Ephesians 5-8, where he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then in 5-8 he says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Paul is saying, based on these previously stated reasons, because you are beloved children of God and because you are children of light, walk carefully. But then he says, be careful. This is the, this is the same word here used in passages in the Gospels, such as Luke 1.3. Um, in, in Luke 1.3, this is how Luke describes going about recording the events of Jesus' life. He says in verse 3, It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Most excellent, Theophilus. And then we also see the same word is used in Matthew 2.8, where Herod sends these magi to look for Jesus. He says, Go and search carefully for the child and when you have found him report to me so that I too may come and worship him so we see here that this word or this adverb be careful is used to describe meticulous observation that would result in accurate action meticulous observation that results in accurate action this is a precise word be precise, be exact, be accurate in how you walk. And then, of course, this word how describes the manner in which something is done, the quality in which an action is undertaken. 
And then perhaps the most important word in all this is that analogy, walk. This is used to describe the all-encompassing scope of one's daily activities. This is actually a common analogy that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians. Let me give you a few examples. Ephesians 2.2, he talks about before we come to faith in Christ, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he kind of flips that analogy in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have walked. Over and over again, Paul uses this analogy to basically illustrate how you should walk about the Christian life. You walk in those good works. You turn away from those deeds in that course which you formerly walked on according to the pattern of the world. But ultimately, when combined, these four elements draw our attention to the truth that our God cares about how we live our lives. And verse 15 states this obviously. He cares how we walk. So then how are we to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? And how are we to do so with wisdom? Because Paul says here we are to walk not as unwise men, but as wise. And he advises us to not be foolish. So how are we to live in the wisdom of God? Well, I think we first need to define wisdom very quickly. Wisdom, and you see this on your outline. Wisdom is living with God in His world according to His ways. Wisdom is living with God in His world according to His ways. That is the essence of wisdom. That is what the whole book of Proverbs is teaching us. Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is teaching us there to live with God in His world according to His ways. So, how do we live with this wisdom? How do we avoid this foolishness? Well, I think there are two things that Paul wants us to set our attention on in this text. One is in verse 16, one is in verse 17. In verse 16, we see that if our walk is going to be characterized by careful intention. Number one, our, this needs to be care which redeems the time we've been given. Care which redeems the time we've been given. My translation in verse 16 says, making the most of your time. But if you enjoy the KJV translation, your translation is going to say, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And this may seem foreign to us, this, this principle of redeeming the time. I mean, just think about that for a second. Redemption language is what is used of sinners like you and me. We need to be redeemed. The moment you were saved, you were redeemed. You were forgiven of your trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. But here, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the same language of redemption to talk about time. Here's why it's foreign to us. We, we treat time like it's a good thing. We actually, a lot of times, we give time the pedestal of being God himself. Uh, you've probably heard the sayings, and I know Dr. Allen has mentioned this before as well, time heals all wounds. Well, let me tell you, time does not heal all wounds. 
Only the God-ordained means of reconciliation can heal wounds like that. You, you probably heard things like this. Time is on my side. Time is not on your side. Let me tell you that. It was not on the side of the Florida Gators last night when them Seminoles beat them. But, thank you. Florida fans, where's the amen at? But we see ultimately here uh, that time is not on our side. Time is ultimately something that needs to be redeemed by us, just like we need to be redeemed. Uh, we even see this principle uh, in like the second law of thermodynamics. I'm not smart, so when I say the second law of thermodynamics, don't think I'm some smart guy. But the second law of thermodynamics is basically a principle in science that says that things digress and regress. They don't improve over time. Um, if I was to spin this cap right here on this table, the second law of thermodynamics says that over time that cap would lose the energy of spinning and stop. And we experience the same principle in our life. Uh, getting old doesn't usually mean that your health is improving and getting better. I, I know this for a fact because I can't move like I did eight years ago when I was in high school. Now, I'm only 26. But all that to say, time is not on our side. Time is not inherently a good thing in a fallen world. So how are we to redeem it? I think there's one thing we need to focus on here, that we need to maximize every moment to advance the purposes of God. Maximize every moment to advance the purposes of God. And I want to give you a few examples here. I want to give you a biblical example. And I want to give you some examples that I've seen here at Grace Church. A biblical example. Take, for instance, Joseph. Joseph is sold to slavery in Egypt by his brothers. He's thrown in prison while he's there. He's falsely accused. He has all these evil things perpetrated on him in time. And yet, by the end of Joseph's life, when he is looking at his brothers who are begging for his forgiveness, he tells them in Genesis 50-20 that you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good so that the present result would come about and that many lives would be saved. You know, Joseph's story is one where he exercised wisdom and acted on the kindness of God. He ended up preparing a nation for a famine and a drought that would happen there. And we see that that ultimately preserved people. Joseph used time. He redeemed his time in Egypt and used it for the purposes of God. But not only do we see these biblical examples like Joseph, I have seen these, uh, this concept of redeeming the time here at Grace as multiple people have opened up their host homes uh, for Grace Groups using that space in their home to advance the purposes of God for equipping and sending out leaders. We have folks who have served in the concession stands year after year, week after week, so that they can be a light before our community and use their time for the purposes of God. I've seen the Jamesons and the Surpuses open up their homes for our college and high school students so that discipleship can take place, so that investment can take place. That's what it looks like to redeem time. See, the, the, the whole thing about redeeming time is not about getting busier. The last thing anyone in this room probably needs is to be busier, for your life to look a little bit more hectic. So automatically, when you think of redeeming the time, you probably think, man, I, don't, I, don't even, I can't even grasp the time I have. I wish I had eight more hours. 
But what we need to see here is that redeeming the time is not about getting busier. It's about maximizing the moments that you already have for the purposes of God. That's how you redeem the time. And so, it leaves us with a question, what are the purposes that we are to pursue? Well, that's shown in verse 17, where we see not only that we are to have care which redeems the time we've been given, we need to have care which references what God has revealed. Paul tells us here, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This exhortation here by Paul means that we seek to know and comprehend God's overarching plan, and we reference it as we walk. And when I say reference, I don't mean that we kind of go to God's Word every once in a while for a life decision. You know, I, I was a theology major in college, and so every single paper I wrote had footnotes on the bottom of the page, and I had to cite my sources for everything I had to do. That's what I'm talking about there. When I talk about referencing what God has revealed, it means that we seek to know and comprehend His overarching plan and reference it as we walk. And I'm not talking about God's sovereign will that we won't know, such as the moment you're going to die. I'm talking about the clear and plain things that God has already revealed in His Word. But here's the problem that, that I see and that I think this verse addresses. We live in a world that is filled with ambiguity, with uncertainty, and angst. And I think that this has crept into the church. Because a lot of the times when I begin to talk to someone about what is the will of God for their life, that's normally not something that brings an, a big amount of comfort, of peace over them, of joy, and of certainty. You know, you, you've probably heard the line all the time that someone's trying to find God's will for their life as if God has hidden it and they'll never know it. But I think there are some things in God's Word that are clearly revealed that tell us this is His will for your life. Pursue it. And let, all the, let the chips fall where they may with all the big stuff. This is where uh, uh, the book of Ephesians is very helpful. Because often, as I talked about, this ambiguity, this uncertainty, this angst has crept into the church. And Christians begin to base their decisions on their subjective feelings, which is postmodernism, rather than God's revealed word. And we end up treating his will like a lottery. And we have a one in a million chance to get it right. I think God's will is much more clear than we often think. His will is his word. And so let me show you that just from two instances here in the book of Ephesians. Because here's the solution. Ultimately, our God is not a God of confusion, but of clarity and certainty. So where in Ephesians do we find His will? I want to give you two reference points this morning. The first time we see it is His will for His people. And we see this in Ephesians 1, 5, and 9, where Paul talks twice about, he uses this phrase, according to the kind intention of His will. And then in verse 9, he talks about how He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. See, when the Bible describes God's will and that parts of God's will is mysterious or a mystery, it's using an analogy of something like something that was once covered and is now revealed. And so here we see that according to the kind intention of his will, if we just back up one verse, 
we see that Paul talks about how we've been blessed with everything in Christ. And he goes on to say this in verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So what is God's will for His people? Well, I think there's one place that kind of states it a little bit more clear, uh, clearly than even Ephesians 1 does. And that is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. So if you want to know God's will for your life, you're going to have it solved right now. You ready for this? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. And if you're not familiar with that term sanctification, ultimately when the New Testament talks about sanctification, it is talking about us being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the very purpose for which God has saved us, that we would be conformed to His image, that we would look more like Jesus as we walk in fellowship with Him. So you want to know God's will for your life? Here it is in two simple statements. Flee from sin and pursue Christ. Because that First Thessalonians verse right there, 4-3, it goes on in the next three verses to talk about fleeing from sexual immorality and bitterness and all these other worldly lusts that we often pursue. And Paul, with clarity, just says, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. This is God's will for His people, that we look more and more like His Son, Jesus. But not only do we see His will for His people, we see His will for all peoples. And we see this in Ephesians 3, 4-7. through 7. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it very briefly. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So you see, God's will was once, there's a mysterious part of it, but now it has been revealed. Now it is well known. And he says, this is it specifically in verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here's the thing. Grace Church does not have a monopoly on God's will. We are not meant to just keep the knowledge of His will here. We are to take the knowledge of His will which is for His people to look more and more like His Son Jesus. And we are to take that to the nations. That is His will for all peoples. That all the nations would hear of the beautiful and glorious news of His grace that He has bestowed on sinners in Christ. So let's make His intention our intention. Let's make His purpose our purpose. Let's make His plan our plan. Let's make His aim our aim. His will our will. Father, may Your will be done through us. That's our prayer. And in the end, we often do not walk with careful intention because we are insufficient in our understanding of the will of God as revealed in His Word. This insufficiency in our awareness of His will both for us and for all the peoples of the earth results in a careless walk that does not make the most of our time and often leads us to waste the very time that God calls us to maximize for His purposes. So this is why we review His Word, so that we may know His will and that we may walk carefully in it. But not only must our walk be characterized by 
<clears throat> careful intention. Our walk will be characterized also by spiritual perception. And we see this in verses 18 through 21, where the Apostle Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, before we proceed, there are a few details I need to explain here. First, we need to see what the filling of the Spirit is not. The filling of the Spirit does not occur because we somehow lose His indwelling presence or because we did not receive the fullness of His abiding presence upon initially believing. We don't need a second baptism. We don't leak. Upon salvation, we receive the fullness of the Spirit. He dwells in us. He abides with us. So we see what the filling of the Spirit is not. It's not some ecstatic, emotional experience. But what it is, and the literal rendering here of be filled with the Spirit kind of helps us get to what this actually means. The literal rending of be filled with the Spirit could be stated like this. Be being kept filled with the Spirit. Or as I found helpful, uh, continue to be kept filled with the Spirit. So Paul is basically describing something that's already been done to us and that the Spirit does to us that we are continuing to walk in. These two renderings help us see that the feeling that Paul is talking about is better understood as an ongoing, moment-by-moment, day-by-day, hour-by-hour submission to the Lordship of the Spirit of Christ who indwells us. And there are three dimensions here of this feeling of the Spirit that may help us kind of grasp what exactly Paul is wanting us to do here. Uh, And I found this in an article, and it was very helpful to me. These three facets or three dimensions of this Greek word that we see here, one kind of brings about the facet of pressure. And when I say pressure, think of like a sailboat with its sails cast up, and the wind comes and hits the sails. The, The Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, is the Spirit propelling us forward to the obedience of faith. But not only is it like the Spirit propelling us forward, it's also He permeates our life. Think of a field with, ski, with uh, seeds scattered across the field, and it fills the field with fruit. That is what the filling of the Spirit is like. He permeates our life where His fruit, the fruit of His ministry, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control fill our lives. And then finally, we see that this filling of the Spirit could be described as His dominion over it. And many of us experience this. And it was like when Walker was born. When Walker was born, this overwhelming sentiment of joy and love took over me when I saw my son. And in the same way, The Spirit takes dominion over us and He fills us and that guides us in our life as He leads us. And so those three dimensions are helpful. He propels us, He permeates our life and makes us fruitful, and He exercises His Lordship over us as we follow Him. And Paul basically uses here in verse 18 the starkest contrast that you could possibly imagine. He contrasts two things and puts them in complete opposition to one another. The first thing he says, it's a negative command. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That, that's just a fancy word for 
over excessive self-indulgence here. That's what dissipation means. It's, it's excessive self-indulgence. Don't get drunk with wine. And then he opposes that. He puts in opposition the filling of the Spirit. So Paul is saying these two things are completely separate. Don't associate getting drunk with wine with being filled with the Spirit. That's what Paul is doing here. He's pitting these two against each other for a reason. And let me just describe drunkenness versus filling of the Spirit real quick. When you think about someone who is a drunkard, one of the first things you know about them is that they are self-indulgent. They fill themselves up with whatever pleasure they want to pursue. But when you think about someone who you would describe as filled with the Spirit, do you think of them as someone who is self-indulgent? No, you begin to think of someone who denies themselves, who looks upward toward God and outward toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. When you think about a drunkard, you think about someone who has disorderly conduct and filthy talk. And you know, it's the classic excuse of, oh, don't mind them, they're just drunk. Right? But when you think about someone who is filled with the Spirit, you think of someone who has self-control in situations. When people are cursing them and going at them and are angry at them, instead of returning anger, they return a curse with a blessing. You think of someone who's not focused on themselves and who is not focused on trying to put others down. And then when you think about someone who's drunk, you think about someone who is inebriated and intoxicated all the time. But when you think about someone who is filled with the Spirit, you think about someone who possesses the mind of Christ, who thinks like Jesus does, who thinks clearly and with a sober mind about situations. In sum, Paul is basically saying here, as drunkenness is to an alcoholic, so is continuing in the filling of the Spirit for the Christian. Just as you don't normally find someone drunk who's not a drunkard or an alcoholic. And in a similar way, it should be the normal pattern for the Christian life for the Christian to be walking in the Spirit. That is what Paul is trying to communicate here. And as a result of walking in the Spirit, the eyes of our hearts are opened and we begin to have this spiritual perception that allows us to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. So how are we to know whether we are walking in the Spirit or not? What are some tangible indicators that help us perceive whether we are walking with the Spirit? I think Paul gives us three indicators here in verses 19, 20, and 21, and I'll give them to you briefly. The first thing we see that if our walk will be characterized by spiritual perception, we will begin to see this, that singing is more than a song. We see this in verse 19 where Paul says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And here's our problem, and here's my problem that I find often. I want to make worship, and I'm not talking about worship in the sense of personal worship. Paul is speaking here in the context of corporate worship like we're doing right now. We are gathered together as a body. But my tendency is to make worship about me. It's something that we constantly have to repent of and turn from and run to Christ for. But we've all seen this. No matter what church we've been a part of, there's always some individual who wants to make worship about them. 
And then we find ourselves doing the very same thing. And it's not usually the explosive situations, whether you like traditional music or contemporary music, and people get crazy about that. No, it's usually stuff like this. We say to ourselves, oh, uh, I'm not a good singer, so I, I, don't, I don't need to sing. Or we say something like this, I don't feel like singing today. Or maybe even this, that's not the arrangement I like, whatever that means. But we often make worship about us. It's about our feelings. It's about our preferences. It's about our wants. And the Apostle Paul goes, no, 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 no. You got this thing all wrong. And so he gives us two axes of worship. The vertical axis of worship and the horizontal axis of worship. He gives us the horizontal first. He tells us to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We teach what is true of God as we sing and encourage each other. Grace Church, I don't know if you know this, uh, but I like to look around as we sing. And one of my favorite things to see each week is my family, my church family, singing the truths of God. And we often don't think about this, but we are actually teaching one another as we sing. You are teaching me as I sing. I get to teach you as we sing. It's one of the beautiful things that God has given us in the church. And so we want to teach what is true of God as we sing and encourage each other. That's what Paul is telling us to do here. And this is the same thing that's echoed in Colossians 3.16, the passage that Haley read earlier for us. Because there he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is the horizontal axis of worship, where God has intended that we sing to Him and that we encourage and teach one another as we do so. But not only is there the horizontal axis, there is the vertical axis of worship. And we see that here in Ephesians 5.19, that the Word of God tells us to make melody with our hearts to the Lord. And this is the very same thing, this is the very thing that's listed in verse 14 of Ephesians 5. This is more than likely part of a hymn that they would have sung in the early church. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Think about a church singing that truth together, praising God that the light of Christ has shined on them, that those who were once in darkness have now been made children of light. And so as we sing together and with one another and to one another, we primarily fix our gaze on Jesus Christ as He is worthy of our worship. And that, and He is our focus. And ultimately what this reveals, whether it's the horizontal axis of worship or the vertical axis of worship, we see that what goes in must come out. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Jesus said in, in the Gospels that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let me just tell you if, if you, if you don't like to sing, if you don't sing because you don't feel like it, What is that saying about what you have stored up in your heart? That as you sit among God's people, you hear the truth of who He is, and you're silent. 
What have you been storing up in your heart there? It's nothing coming out that's worthy of praising God. And so, as you go throughout this next week, ask yourself this question each day. What am I storing up this week that will overflow during corporate worship and result in God being glorified and the body of Christ being edified? What are you storing up that will come out here next Sunday as we gather together and as we sing to our God how good and how great He is? For we need to be reminded of the riches of Christ. And we need one another as we seek to have His Word dwell richly among us and in us. So let singing be more than a song. But we also see in verse 20 that thanksgiving is more than a single day. And I think the the context of where Paul is writing this letter from makes what he says in verse 20 all the more beautiful. See, Ephesians like Colossians and Philemon is considered one of Paul's prison uh, letters. And so he's writing these from prison. Uh, we see this evidenced in Ephesians 3.1, 4.1, and then ultimately in Ephesians 6.20 where he says, For which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he tells the Ephesians to always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father. So how can we give thanks always? I think there's one thing to hone on here, hone into here, and that's for us to be heavenly-minded. Now, what I'm not talking about here when I say heavenly-minded, I'm not merely talking about the realm of heaven as that, that's distinguished from the earth here. And when I'm talking about being heavenly-minded, I'm not talking about some escapism where we're trying to escape this body and get away from this body for our soul to be detached from this body. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm saying heavenly-minded. What I mean when I say heavenly-minded is for us to fix our eyes on Christ. And that is the exact thing that Paul does in the beginning of this book of Ephesians. For in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what I mean when I say we need to be heavenly minded. And now you you may say to me, Colin, what, what if we are so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good? And I'll just ask you the question, have you ever met someone who is so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good I don't think I've ever met someone like that where they were so heavenly minded they were no earthly good where they were so fixated on who Jesus is that they were of no benefit to his kingdom here on earth no I think the exact opposite is true that we are so earthly minded that we are no earthly good to the kingdom of God So we need to be heavenly minded to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we, when we are tempted, like I am, to complain and grumble and moan about every situation that I go through each week, every hardship that I experience, whether big or small, ultimately, I need to ask myself the question, am I so earthly minded that I am blind to every good thing I have in Christ? Because I, I don't know if y'all heard what I heard in Ephesians 1.3. 
that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so that means if God does not give you one more breath, you already have everything you need. You have every reason to give thanks because He has blessed you in Christ with everything. And so if we're going to walk with spiritual perception, we need to see not only that singing is more than a song and thanksgiving is more than a single day, we need to see finally this morning that humility is more than lip service. Humility is more than lip service. As we're told in Ephesians 5, 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What we are called to here is to be mutually humble before one another. And Paul basically gives us examples of this in Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9. He gives us three places, in public and in private, where we get to practice humility is more than lip service. And this call to practice humility is for the husband and the wife. It's for the child and the parent. It's for the boss and the employee. It's for the banker and the janitor. It's for the cop and the ex-con. It's the pastor, the deacon, and the faithful church member. We are to be subject to one another in Christ. This command and call to mutual subjection is to anyone who has been brought to that overwhelming and reverential awe that occurs and continues in our hearts and minds when we believe in Jesus. When we begin to think about that our Lord has bestowed and lavished His grace on us, that should humble us before one another. That no matter what station we have in life, there's, there's no partiality with how our God views us. We are His children. We are His beloved in Christ. And we are to treat one another as so. And so very quickly, we see this first in marriage. I'm not going to read all those verses. But in Ephesians 5, 22-33, we basically see this. That in the marriage relationship, humility is more than lip service. When husbands initiate the kind of love that Christ has for the church... And then wives reciprocate that love to their husbands. And so what we ultimately see that, that just as Christ went to the furthest extent to redeem his people, so husbands and wives are to go to the furthest extent to serve and love one another. And then we see this in the relationship between, between parents and their children, that children are to humble themselves before their parents. And as their parents imitate Christ... Children are to follow in their parents' example. So kids, look to your parents and how they imitate Christ and follow them. Don't be like me, who when my parents told me something, and they're here today, so I'm kind of ratting myself out. Don't be like me when they would tell me not to do something and I would go up to my room and do it. Don't just do it off of lip service and eye service. Aim to sincerely obey Christ from the heart and obey your parents. And then finally, we see with bosses and employees in Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, or 5 through 9, where Paul basically calls both bosses and employees to mutual service to one another with sincerity in their hearts to the Lord. And in that way, bosses and employees imitate Christ to one another. For Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So whether it's in the marriage covenant or the relationship that you have with your kids as you raise them up, or whether it's who you work for or who works for you, we are to have humility that is more than just lip service as Christians. And so here's where the rubber meets the road this morning. Ultimately, Paul tells us to be careful how we walk and to walk with spiritual wisdom before a watching world. So Grace Church, as you leave this building this week, know that your walk talks. So let's walk as beloved children. Let's walk in the light. Let's walk in those good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you that you have poured out your grace on us. That you have filled us with your spirit. And that you have called us to be your representatives before a watching world. So, Father, help us to walk as children of light. And may when our walk talks this week, may it bring glory and honor to your name. May Christ be praised as we live in the obedience of faith. And may we not grieve the Spirit, but may we walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of our flesh this week. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This morning, if you need... Uh, to talk with anyone, I'll have Mr. Cliff and Matt and myself down here. So let's worship.